Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Judy Nedry at her home in Lake Oswego. Hi. Uh, April 19th, 2021. Judy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, indeed. We're gonna start with wine today. So let's talk about why wine? Why wine? Wow. Because I was raised in the Episcopal Church and wine was part of communion and it had, a, and it had a, an incredible fascination for me from when I was a kid on. I mean, I was, and then of course, being a reader, I, I started reading when I was really young. And when I got into real novels, there was always wine. So, yeah, everything about it was intriguing to me from a very early age. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your, the process of kind of discovering it as you grew up. Well, I didn't just, I mean, the first probably, I've always liked to try local products and, you know, I was drinking these dollar a bottle Chiantis and I'd get a bottle a week when I was a senior in college and think I was a big deal and um, so I drank that rot gut for a while and then um, real Chianti is a thing of beauty but this, it, this was not, but <laughs> it did the job. and. Um, Somewhere after I moved to Portland, I discovered that there were some Oregon wines, and the first Oregon wine I remember drinking was Ma Bender's Rosy Rhubarb, which was, um, hmm, how shall I say this, an otherworldly experience. <laughs> and um, it was really good. It was really good. I mean, who knew, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the favorite wine of the early 70s for, until. Um, I started working downtown Portland and people I was around were interested in wine and we started a wine tasting group. And that really started opening doors for me and it kind of went from there. I met Harry at a bus stop. That's Harry Peterson Nedry. And um, he was interested in wine. So when we started dating, we really started trying nice wines, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he was from North Carolina and didn't, hadn't really had any experience with wine. But out here, it's, when we got together, it grew. Mm-hmm. And he was from a farm and he really wanted to farm. And I was a writer and I really wanted to write. And um, after we got married, um, and I, I, I quit working to stay home with little kids, and I was writing about art, and that wasn't going anywhere. There were a lot, apparently, a lot of people who knew more about art than I did, or thought they did, and so um, I wasn't selling anything there, and our wine interest continued, and we started we started going to, to the local places and I decided I would write something about Oregon wines because I was passionate about it. You know, there was, you couldn't read anything about Oregon wines in 1980. 
So here I was seven months pregnant with Wynne, my winemaker baby, and she, um, she's bouncing around in there and I set up all these interviews with the pioneer winemakers and um, Myron Redford, Dickie Erath, actually I spoke to Kina. Uh, so the Eraths, the Campbells, um, the Volsteks, David Lett, and Dave Adelsheim, and the Ponzi's. So, you know, the classic, and the Sokolblossers. And I wrote my first Oregon wine article for the Oregon Business Journal. I turned it in on May 1st, and my winemaker daughter was born the next day. <laughs> so she's been in, she's been soaked in this stuff. And, um, and then I, I approached a wine, I went we, over to Idaho to visit my parents that summer, and we went out to St. Chappelle, which w turns out was making really good Rieslings. And I thought, okay, I can write about these guys. And that was the first wine article I sold to a wine magazine. And then I kind of got, I kind of got hooked on it. I was, I was on the march, and I, there was something I could do. There was a market for it, and I loved it. And I'll tell you what, my first interview with David Lett was one of the scariest things I ever went through. He approached me like Winston Churchill before Dunkirk. And do you know this, and do you know that? And he was really aggressive. And he turned out to be such a puppy dog, and we were, we were such good friends for years and years and years. And, you know, I really forged some friendships there. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was amazing. And we, uh, he got, he was my best source. After, I mean, I'd go over there, if I needed to know something, I'd go over there and we'd get, together in his office, in that, that dingy old office. Have you seen, you saw it, way, yeah. That's an archive in itself. <laughs> and we get together in that dingy old office and have a couple glasses of his wonderful wine. And boy, did I get stories from him. So that, that was enrich, extra enrichment, but uh, you know, before very long, I mean, maybe a year or so later, I was writing for the Wine Spectator and a couple other wine magazines. And then I um, started judging and a guy I met um, named Craig Goldwyn started a magazine and wanted me to be his regional editor. And um, so I had, I had several freelance gigs going and it was just this, it was just this wonderful network that kept building and building. And I, by the time we moved to Newburgh in 1986, I had the network in place to break the story about Rollins Souls and Argyle. And when that whole thing came out, I broke that in the Wine Spectator. And then I knew something was going on with the French. Mm -hmm. And Adelsheim and Lett weren't going to tell me anything. So, I, I just got, I just got very pugnacious about it. 
And I went after Lett and I finally, I finally wrung it out of him. And I broke that, the Druon story mm -hmm. to the wine spectator and anyone else who was interested. So I really, I really got in on all the juicy stuff. And aside from that, there was, um, back then there weren't that many wineries. I mean, the explosion probably started after, after um, Argyle and Druin, but, um, but you know, we were, it was a small community. And I think when I wrote my first story, there were maybe 16 or 18 wineries in Oregon. Um, considerably more when I did my first wine judging at the Oregon State Fair. I think that might have been 84. And um, they attracted a couple of big name judges. That's where I met um, Craig Goldwyn. And kind of went from there. Yeah, but we, but the thing that was fun, there was a uh, there were a lot of get-togethers, and many of them were very spontaneous, and they were up at Adelsheim's house that overlooked their vineyard. And um, we'd just get up there, uh, we'd go up there, and everybody'd bring stuff. And I'll tell you, the food and wine and stories that flowed at those events was, was absolutely magical. The kids grew up with it. Um, and, I, and I forgot to mention, in 1980, you know, Harry, wanted, Harry the farmer, found some vineyard land. Mm. So the year Wynn was born, we bought our first property. Mm. And at that, at some point, I knew I'd have to get out of the wine writing because there'd be a winery. But that was still a long way off. Mm -hmm. And um, so so he, he kind of took over the, the, the vineyard management. I got involved when I could, and when he started making wine in our garage, I was always, um, I was always cooking these big dinners for whoever happened to be working that day. And it was, it was just so, um, it was such a great connecting time. A great, this big family of, of people in the industry I can't even imagine what it's like now because, you, you know, it's gotten to be, there was a phase where a lot of um, wealthy people were coming in and starting wineries and then now it's sort of gone into the corporate phase yeah. and I don't know, um, and there are so many wineries and I don't know that, I mean, I think, you know, we're circumstances different and I was still writing about that stuff I'd still find it interesting but it it's so different and I reflect that in my novels how um, my protagonist talks about how things are changing and um, of course Oregon's making spectacular wines and and I believed that from the beginning that that was that was going to happen I believed that from from day one, when when I was out there interviewing all those pioneers, and they believed it in their heart of hearts, and they proved they proved themselves. Mm -hmm. It was really a spectacular experience, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think too many people can tell tell a story like mine. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe mm -hmm. some people in the early days of the Napa Valley boom. I knew some writers down there that were around when that was going on, and uh, Leon Adams. He was um, 
he was at that first wine judging at the Oregon State Fair, and I got, I took him, I spent a day with him driving all over wine country, and we, um, we talked so much about the early days of the Napa Valley Wine Auction and how he got out of regular reporting and into um, writing about wine. So, anyway, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So I, want to, I have a lot of questions about that, but I want to back up for a second. You, sure. you mentioned writing before wine. Tell me about your kind of your your writing path before you started writing wine articles. What was your schooling and your kind of early writing work? Well, my fourth in the fourth grade, I started writing a recipe book. So I've always had an, aside from my kind of spiritual interest in wine in the early days, I had this thing about food, and I grew up in northern Idaho. And there wasn't much variety there, but um, I was always looking. I was always looking for that, and food and wine go together. And then in sixth grade, I was writing plays with a friend of mine, and um, started out as an English major, and then switched into journalism. Went from Whitman College to um, University of Oregon because they had a really good journalism school and still do. And then um, I fiddled around down in Eugene with a kind of a quasi-underground magazine called Bullfrog Information Service. And um, that was, that experience deserves a book at some point. Um, it was pretty bizarre, but I wouldn't have missed it. And then I moved up here and um, went to work as a reporter for the Tiger Times. So um, I always wanted to write, you know, what I wanted to write. And the fact that I got a chance to do that is just a gift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I did it for, oh my God, 20 years. Yeah. So you talked about, you had an interesting perspective, like you said, that kind of unique to you because, because you had the kind of the insider from, from watching Shehalem get started, but also from watching the industry from, from your role as writing about all of them. So tell me about your, your thoughts on, you mentioned kind of the people already, but your thoughts on the people and the wines of the, of the 80s. Uh, you, you thought there was potential. Yeah. Tell me about the wines as you started tasting them and as you started judging them and, and the people behind them and what made you think about the potential Oregon had. Well, you know, I'd been to, I'd, when I worked at Merrill Lynch I, uh, and was in this tasting group, and, and then when I was, when I finished up there, I, we had a tasting group at home. And so it was tasting and comparison, I guess. And um, early on, I'm trying to remember, I think the wine, Harry and I were most taken with was um, we used to go to this little re restaurant kind of a bistro and Adelsheim wines were on the wine list and we always ordered them and it, you know they were surprisingly good mm -hmm. I mean this was late 70s mm -hmm. yeah I think 78 seven, uh, 78 79 80 um, and they were making, I believe, a Merlot and a Semillon. I'm, my memory could be wrong, but um, 
we had we'd order those regularly when we went to this restaurant and um it was they were good mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i don't know how they knew what they were doing i don't i mean i mean they were just like here are these people they'd been in the food i think jenny worked at crepe fair for some time and dave was working at a restaurant downtown and um, we were just starting to get a couple good restaurants in Portland and um, then they had this kind of communal thing going on out at their place very early on but you know you can't make good wine without good grapes and so somewhere good grapes were being grown and then Richard Summer mm -hmm. At some point, I tasted one of his Rieslings, and you don't have to be a genius to know that that was the real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, Richard Summer could be erratic, but he made some incredible wines. And um, I trusted my palate. Mm -hmm. I, had, oh, I had always gone for, for the good stuff, all my life I'd been looking for the good stuff and I was finding it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I knew that people, people who weren't supporting, you know, weren't trying these wines were missing out because here, here we were on, and here was this beautiful climate that was just perfect for certain types of grapes. And then Southern Oregon, a whole nother, mm -hmm. a whole nother climate perfect for certain kinds of grapes and then oh my god Walla Walla Washington where I went to college for two years mm -hmm. we have it all here and and that Riesling they were growing in Idaho was pretty amazing too here was this guy that shouldn't have been making great wine making really good Riesling mm -hmm. and he was passionate about it and um, those were great stories to me, and mm -hmm. I was so excited. I just wanted to share them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I trusted. I trusted my palate, and um, we we throw these things in when our little tasting groups at home, and uh, when the, when there were some wines available, and they did just fine. Mm -hmm. Some, I mean, of course, there there were a lot of stinkers too back then because people were just learning. But mm -hmm. when the when you got a good one, it was pretty pretty wonderful and the, the learning curve also was incredibly fast. Oh, Elk Cove Rieslings. I just found one in a friend, I was doing an estate, I just found one in my late friend's basement that dated from 1982 and I gave it to my daughter and I said, if this is still sound, you're gonna be amazed because they did beautiful, they did beautiful Rieslings. Mm -hmm. Beautiful wines in general, but mm -hmm. Their Rieslings were exceptional. So as you started to write more about wine in Oregon, what were the, what, what, what were the things you were attracted to? What did you enjoy writing about? And, and are there some memorable stories that you remember writing that you're particularly proud of or, or think back on? Well, I don't, let me think a minute. Well, I was, a, I was, um, I was particularly proud of that first one on Idaho Riesling because I think Miss Piggy on something, some, uh, some Muppets show had said something about Idaho Riesling and I thought, I'll show you, lady, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> and uh, I have that story somewhere. And so I th I was pretty I was pretty jazzed about that. And um, of course, the first one, the, the Oregon Business Journal, that just sort of laid it all out. This is what's here, and here's. You know, so stand by for further news. Mm -hmm. David Letta just won that big f French tasting, which is where he and Druin actually got to be friends. Mm -hmm. They were, they were um, kind of professional rivals, but you know that that caught mm -hmm. um, because both both of those men were um, were passionate about what they were doing, and Druin saw there was potential here. And you're not exactly going out and buying vineyard land in France, mm -hmm. and haven't for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So the only place to go was New World somewhere, mm -hmm. if you wanted to, to expand. Mm -hmm. so, and I was really proud of the Druin story because it took, it took such a lot of, um, Oh, I don't know, planning and guile and, you know, I knew, I knew, I knew what was going on, but I couldn't prove it. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't say anything till I, till I actually got it. And then when I finally squeezed it out of lead, I called up Dave Adelsheim and I said, okay, it's time for us to talk. <laughs> and then I think a week later, Drew Ann was over here and I got to talk to him. And I mean, it was fabulous. Yeah, he came over and and signed the papers and got going. And then um, not too long after that, one Sunday morning, um, Doug Macy and Ernie Munch showed up at our house in Newburgh. And Doug was an old, old friend. And Ernie had um, been the architect we'd hired when we bought this old Queen Anne Victorian in Newburgh and, and it needed a complete redo and um, they came out and they wanted to know well what do we need to know about designing a winery you know and we're standing in the kitchen drinking coffee and um, Harry and I gave them the goods mm -hmm. and they made a presentation and they built the main Druin. And it, and you know, they they made it. I think it might have been. The, it was the first gravity mm -hmm. flow winery, and and the design is beautiful and withstands the tests of time, and um, you know that was the kind of stuff mm -hmm. that that was happening in our lives, mm -hmm. and um, that was part of the magic. Mm -hmm. What do you remember of the reaction by the industry and uh, to the Druins buying in? What, what do you remember any reaction or reaction to your story? Hmm. Well, you know, I think um, surprise and delight. Surprise. A lot of people like a lot of the tight little enclave had been had been involved. You know. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of warmed my way into to what was going on there. But surprise and delight, because we thought it would shine a light on how good how good things were here and um, the amazing potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
And I'm kind of foggy on dates, but that had to be mm, 88. 88, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we were still very young, mm -hmm. and and this was this was such a huge deal mm -hmm. for the, for the industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, the French. I love the French winemaking thing. It's so family oriented. So it was just the kind of thing our industry here understood and they understood. Mm -hmm. And so it was the perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And it's proven to be a wonderful thing for the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it attract that's when um I think that's when the outside investors um started, you know, the the second wave really started taking an interest is after that happened mm -hmm. for, for good or for bad and <laughs> and I think mostly for good mm -hmm. yeah okay. yeah so I'm curious in the in the early days of, of your writing there as you mentioned there wasn't much of an industry yet there were only a couple of dozen wineries perhaps mm -hmm. pretty scattered throughout the state and and there wasn't any kind of it wasn't much interest I assume outside of Oregon in in, in Oregon wine at that point yet or, or, or maybe I'm wrong about that no, there wasn't. But funny thing, I, I have a, through through Saint Chapelle. They did a little getaway on the Salmon River in 1984, and I met Lila Galt from Seattle. And she and her husband were starting a cider works on Bainbridge Island, which she called Brain Dead Island. She absolutely <laughs> hated Bainbridge Island, but she, they were they were excited about the cider works and Lila was also a writer and um, she's a good friend. We, be, we became really good friends, but she became uh, involved as, um, as an executive director for the Washington wine industry. And then I started, little, little planes would come down and fly me out to Yakima or, or up to um, Chateau St. Michel for an event. And, you know, once I kind of got my feet on the ground as a writer, it was, it became bigger for me, mm -hmm. much bigger than Oregon. It mm -hmm. became, it was Northwest. Mm -hmm. And then in 1986, the year we moved to Newburgh, another acquaintance of mine who'd been writing a wine newsletter approached me and wanted to expand this newsletter and would I partner with him? And that was Cameron Nagel. And we were doing, we did this little wine newsletter and then we decided to turn it into a magazine a year later and that became the Northwest Palette. Mm -hmm. So we could do the food and the wine. Mm -hmm. And that opened a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. And I started getting trips to Europe and that was really fun. I'd been writing about European wines too mm -hmm. and a lot of California stuff. I mean, I went down to California a lot and wrote about, I was doing a wine column for This Week magazine weekly column and so I, I got a lot of um, I did a lot more than just Oregon mm -hmm. but my my focus and my passion was the Northwest wine industry mm -hmm. yeah tell me about what you as a writer writing about an industry that is just just getting going and, and doesn't have a lot of recognition yet what did you, how did you approach it in terms of educating people who might be reading about Oregon wine without knowing anything about it I started with the stories and the families 
and um, the grit, you know, the hardships, what they went through, um, how nobody believed in them, and then they'd go win some big award somewhere. And uh, I always think it's the story stupid, you know. Um, and, and I was never going to run out of stories. There was always something new going on. Mm -hmm. and, when, um, and when we moved out to Newburgh, of course that was partly for the vineyard, but um, it put me, I didn't have to drop everything and figure out how I was going to get out there to cover something, you know. Mm -hmm. It was, because uh, I was kind of right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a question I like to ask about people who, people who write about wine for a living. I, what, what is it about the wine industry and who it attracts to work in it that, that make for such compelling stories? What, 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 in your experience, what, what is compelling about people in the industry? Family-oriented, agrarian, um, sustainable, natural. I'm not trying to use buzzwords here, but you know, I think the wine industry has has kind of sh been shining a light for years on how to manage the, and sustain the land. And I think that's super important. Just for example, Harry has been keeping a temperature. Um, he's he's really nerdy. He's um, he, he's been keeping track of temperatures since since we bought the property out there mm -hmm. in 1980, mm -hmm. and seen an amazing difference in how things are heating up and what a you know, how we're terribly threatened by climate change. I mean, the whole industry can be, ch it'll, it's going to be um, Pinot Noir, they're going to be growing Pinot Noir. Well, they're already growing it in BC, but you know, Pinot Noir is a kind of a cooler climate grape, and this was a cooler climate 20 some years ago, 30 years ago, and Harvest would start in mid-October. Well, when was the last time harvest started in mid-October? The last time it did, it was a fluke. Mm -hmm. So things um, are changing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I like the values. I like the wine, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I like the wine too much. <laughs> but the values, the inherent values of... Um, what the industry was doing and how they were doing it mm -hmm. was really, really attractive to me. Mm -hmm. And I liked the people. Mm -hmm. I didn't find that many pills. You know, how every four out of a hundred people are going to make you crazy. Um, well, you know, I'd say maybe two mm -hmm. in the industry. <laughs> there were some notable examples, but um, for the most part, I, I really liked the people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and some of them were a little odd. Some of them were old hippies, and um, you know, you had you had a good mixture of mm -hmm. all backgrounds coming t together. Uh, uh, people who otherwise probably wouldn't seek each other out, mm -hmm. and and here was this um, 
Here was this bunch of people that just made it happen, and I'm telling you, we had some really good times when, when that bunch got together and there'd be 40 people at Adelsheim's and kids running all over the place and three different languages being spoken. Oh boy, <laughs> didn't get much better than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in our archive, we have a we have a little uh, book you wrote about Oregon wine, uh, the little. Uh, pamphlet, I guess you might call it, of Oregon wine families. Is that the only thing you have? No, but that is one thing we have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was curious about the creation of that and, and what, what prompted it. Oh, some guy approached me, asked me to, to write it for him, and I thought, well, I don't have anything else going on this week. That sounds like fun. And he had a really good photographer. And, it, and so, yeah, that's, that happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was not the most... He was one of the two percenters. Somebody shot him about six months after our project. He lived through it. But, <laughs> you know, you can't make this stuff up. But I remember reading it in the paper, and I thought, well, that blippity blip, that's, that's, he had it coming. I mean, he just pushed somebody a little too hard, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd forgotten all about that. <laughs> I was reading it at breakfast and laughing my head <laughs> off. I mean, isn't that awful? It's just awful. But um, it struck me funny because he'd pushed me to, you know, mm -hmm. by the time we got through with that, I was ready to, be, to kill him. Mm -hmm. But it came out and it was fine. It was the best we could do at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Obviously, you were, you had many friends in the industry, and you had many relationships in the industry. I'm, I'm curious what their what their kind of reaction was to you. Obviously, you were you were pushing in some ways, and you were trying to break stories, and you were asking them questions. Maybe they didn't always want to answer. Mm -hmm. How did they How did they kind of how 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 did they handle you? How how were you How were you? Sometimes they just put up with me. <laughs> you know, I think I think it was generally positive because. Um, Overall, I was doing for them what they couldn't do for themselves, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And who else was going to do it? Matt Kramer wasn't going to do it. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, I was kind of a necessary evil at times. And um, I know they got, I know people got pissed off with me, and it just happens. Mm -hmm. Part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Part of the deal. People got pissed off with us when, you know, their wines didn't get as high scores in the palate as they thought they should get. It, you know, maybe it was a you know, I don't know, maybe they had a bad day, maybe we had a bad day. You can't be completely 100% all the time, but mm -hmm. we did the best we could. Mm -hmm. As honestly as we could, as double blind. Mm -hmm. I knew how it worked, and I'm, I, you know, I finally decided that scoring wasn't the right way to go. Mm -hmm. It just was too arbitrary, but it's it's still done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as as Northwest Palette kind of grew and evolved, um, you mentioned kind of food and wine and North and not just Oregon but Northwest and also Europe. 
tell me about its role and, and your role with it. Did, did did you did you were you out seeking stories? Were things coming into you? How did how did you kind of fill it uh, from month to month? Oh my God. Well. There were always interesting restaurants. I mean, there was a lot going on in Portland and Seattle, as far as that goes. And 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 there were, um, in conjunction with that, the wine lists. And I really believe that in both cities, the growth of the wine industry was a direct um, was a direct kick in the butt for restaurants to get better. When I moved to Portland. There was L'Auberge, Genoa, the Ringside, and the London Grill. And that was about it for reliably good food. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of little, little, littler restaurants. There were some wonderful little restaurants, but for fine dining, mm -hmm. there really wasn't anything other than those four, and, and they were, they were noteworthy, the, I mean, the London Grill, the old London Grill, I don't know how long you've been around, but that was an experience. And the old ringside with all those old waiters, they were all 100 years old and they'd been doing it all their lives. And that was like, that was probably in some ways very European, very, or very stuffy East Coast or something, I'm not sure, but, um, but yeah, now oh, they're everywhere, mm -hmm. and they're wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like New York. You can go out and get a great meal for not much money, mm -hmm. or you can spend $200 and get a great meal. It just depends on what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, didn't, that didn't exist. But um, it's always been, I think, that, that good wine does demands good food. You know, you're not just going to sit there and, and drink it and smack your lips. That gets boring. But when you put food with it, it's, 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 a, syn it's a synergistic thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, becomes, uh, it becomes more than, what's, how, greater than the sum, it's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so, so your writing career, I know, can, has, has continued since then. Tell me about the kind of the evolution of it from, from wine journalism. What happened next? Well, what happened next? Well, I guess I'll just give it to you, and if you don't want it, that's fine. Um, what happened next was I realized I was an alcoholic, not because I'd planned that or in any way um, was okay with it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of denied it for, for probably five or six years, maybe ten. Hard to say with that disease because it's so sneaky. And I had to do something about it. My life was, I was self-destructing physically. Everything around me had gone to shit. So I checked into a treatment center. Mm. Out in Newburgh, very good. And two weeks later, our son was killed in a car, car crash. 
and very few marriages survive the death of a child and ours didn't mm -hmm. so I had to do something else meanwhile I got this book contract to write Oregon wine country so I wrote that sober I wrote Washington wine country sober and then I decided I can't do this anymore you know I'm not doing this because it's bad for my health and so I moved to Portland and reinvented myself and started writing mystery novels which is something I had wanted to do since I was a kid and knew there was such a thing as a mystery novel so that's kind of where it all um, this is this is how this all came around and I kind of reunited with all my all my friends who lived in Portland I'd never lost touch with mm -hmm. and um, made a good life for myself mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. but no the wine writing had to end I would have never ended it if I didn't have to because it's the most fun I've ever had and I mean writing mystery novels is, is uh, the most fun I've ever had too um, so I, I can you know I but I love I, I love my life now and I'm not creating um, havoc and I'm not dead and that's um, and my daughter and I are very close and all my all the things I've re ever really were important to me in life are still there mm -hmm. except I wish I could have continued with the writing and the traveling and mm -hmm. it was it was just so good mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so so how did uh, tell me about the, the first novel for you and, and how it came about and, and what's different about writing fiction than than your, than writing nonfiction? Well, the difference is in writing fiction, you can be God. You know, if you don't like what somebody says, you just go back and change it. And uh, that's kind of like, oh my, I've been a journalist all my life, you know. I've tried to say exactly what people have said, you know, all these years. And, uh, <clears throat> and so um, people, people can behave outrageously and often do. Um, and I can make up stories, but I can use things too. I mean, I... I well, the Emma Golden mysteries, when they're set in wine country, and not all of them are. I've got one more coming out, coming that's going to be set in wine country, and one that's over in eastern Oregon. But because um, Emma doesn't just stay in one place, mm -hmm. um, and she's got this crazy friend Melody that um, is always getting her into something, and. Um, It's fun. It's, I kind of got off track here. Um, I can use, oh, okay. All the stuff I learned about wines and wineries and dirt and people, I can use. I mean, all, everything in a novel is collective knowledge from somewhere else, right? Um, I mean, it's not something you necessarily experience directly, but it's there's it's, there's collective knowledge that's all stored up there that you don't even know you have, mm -hmm. and so that's how it's different, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about tell me about the first one. The first one was okay. Where did she go? 
and she comes back. She goes back, Emma goes back to kind of stick her toe, and, and in her case, she'd been away long, long, seven years, seven or eight years, um, which is not how, it's not my story, but she, then she kind of renewed old friendships out there and realized that, yeah, she could go back and hang out and it would be, but she hadn't trusted herself um, because Emma's an alcoholic and she hadn't trusted herself really to go back out there and be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. And um, she found out she could and she found out she still had the juice to write about it and that um, it was still interesting to her and then oh my goodness, a murder happened, you know? And, uh, and then another murder happened. And, and so I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and there were people that rubbed her the wrong way and she wasn't like the author. She was pretty frank about um, letting those opinions be known. <laughs> and um, sometimes the author is a little too candid, but Anyway, um, <clears throat> that's another story. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how it went. Mm -hmm. And then, then for some reason in the second one, Emma had a sister who disappeared and they had to go looking for her. And that had little to do with wine country, but everybody who reads that book talks about the people out in the, the vineyard crews, it was in February, and they're out there pruning in their yellow slickers, and uh, as they're leaving the area, Emma's noticing that. And I just want to, part, part of being writing those novels is wanting people to know how beautiful it is, how mm -hmm. beautiful it is, and all the things I appreciated about the industry and being out there and the seasons and, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. um, wine, wine country, that, there you're back to that agrarian thing again, it preserves the land and it's still beautiful, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could, be a, that could be another big subdivision. Actually, Ponzi's old place is. Uh, the last time, God, I hadn't been out there for a few years and I drove out there, oh my God. I think it was after I moved back to Portland and I'm going, good grief, you know? They were out in the middle of nowhere. And, and mm -hmm. there's, that little place is surrounded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we can't let that happen to our, we can't let that happen to our land. Mm -hmm. Now there's gotta be some, there's gotta be some stuff left where you can grow things that, where it isn't a thousand miles away. It's important. This industry is important for all the changes. <clears throat> and, um, and I want people to know that. I still want people to know that. So with the, when you had your first novel written, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, first of all, if it, was, if it was cathartic for you in any way to, have, to finish a, a, a fictional piece and second of all, what you did with it. What, what was the process for you after you had a, a written piece? Um, hmm. <clears throat> I don't know if you'd say cathartic. 
It was cathartic for Emma. Um, I think it was cathartic for me, not so much the material, I mean, well, not so much the material, but the fact that I wrote a novel. It was like having another baby. It was, it took a long time. It was arduous. And when it finally popped out, it was like, oh my God, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And um, truly, I thought it was. I was, um, I self-published. Mm -hmm. I mm, kind of nibbled around at, at getting um, an agent. But I was too impatient. And probably I could have gone, you know, at some point you have to quit writing. I probably could have gone over it another couple times and, and change a few things. And I have since then and redone it in the ebook format. Mm -hmm. um, not, not major redos, but just little things. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought it was pretty good, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, I see mistakes. I see mistakes in all of them. Not not typos. Not the things that seven readings and three spell checks and grammar checks and everything else. Not the stuff that misses. But I see things that I wish I'd done differently. Mm -hmm. But that's. I think that's. I mean, that's the case with anything you write. You know. Mm -hmm. And I think it would. There'd be something wrong with it if it was perfect, mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a mysterious process. The part that, um, the part in fiction writing that's so fascinating is like a couple of the characters in the first, my first novel, An Unholy Alliance, that old guy that owned the vineyard, Nestor Pullman or whatever his name was, yeah, he just came to me. She was out there messing around and ran into this guy and they ended up having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And he was an old time grape grower. He'd never had a winery. Mm -hmm. um, that was just the name, everything. It just sort of was, uh, I was writing along and there he was. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen in journalism. Mm -hmm. And I love it when that happens. Mm -hmm. That's the magic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of magic there. Mm -hmm. What is your writing process like for fiction and, and how, has it, how have you kind of honed it over the years? <laughs> I write when I can. I write when I feel like it. If something else comes up, I just became a grandmother in December. Mm -hmm. I haven't written anything worthwhile since two months before that. The pandemic didn't help either. But actually, I got to get up in the morning and walk. And then I can write. And then sometimes, if, if it's not working, I'll go do something else. And it's like, um, I have a sweet spot about 7 o'clock at night. I have a sweet spot usually late morning. Mm -hmm. I try to work with the sweet spots. Um, but if I'm really going on something, I can go all day and night. It just depends. It's really, um, you know, when the flow is there, you're not going to walk away from that. It's, it's impossible to walk away from it. 
you mentioned you were working, you have something else coming up for yourself, another writing project. Tell, uh, me, about, tell me what's next. Well, I plan to do, um, in fact, I've written a few, a few chapters on two Emma Golden novels. Um, <clears throat> and I'd like to be a, do a prequel to the Emma Golden novels, maybe when she lived out in wine country. Mm -hmm. That's something I've toyed with. Um, that because that would be able to show a lot of a lot of what it was like that you know she has these flashes of memory but there isn't much detail mm -hmm. um, about to kind of set the stage for what it was like when there were 16 wineries instead of however many hundred there are now I've lost track how many hundred are there 900 maybe eight, I mean that's freaky how in the world did that happen Nobody intended that, mm -hmm. but you know it's an addictive lifestyle, and I don't mean it in the alcohol sense, uh, in the wine drinking sense. It is a very sweet lifestyle, if you choose to do it as a lifestyle. I don't know how much of that is even happening now. You know, Bollinger, mm -hmm. great, <laughs> but they're not the Ponzi's. Mm -hmm. You know, I have I visited the. The winery, I, they do a great job. Um, they're an a, they're going to be a definite asset to this industry, but it's it's totally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We've talked a couple times during the interview about changes you've seen in the industry, um, and that like like that one. Are there other changes you've seen as the growth has happened, and from from your perspective? Um, what else is different about Oregon, the Oregon wine industry now than, than, than in the past? You know, I kind of distanced myself when I had family members still at Shehalem. I used to go out and cook harvest dinners every uh, lunch, you know, lunch for the, for the winery crew mm -hmm. um, once a week during harvest, mm -hmm. and that was... That was the that was just really special, um, but um, I bet I would guess that one would be hard pressed to find a really icky bottle of wine, of Oregon wine, you know, because people aren't making. I mean, stuff happens. And, and wines, many wines are going to be better than others, but you know, the technology, the knowledge, the process, you don't, you don't have home winemakers coming in anymore mm -hmm. and making wine. So a wine might not be very good, but it will most likely, I would expect a level of technical soundness to it. Where are we? You're saying that the, the winemaking itself has its heart. Yeah, I, I expect, you know, people who started wineries back in our day can't afford to do that anymore. So you have to come in. What I see is a lot of money. And, and people obviously have it. And I am so glad our early winemaker wineries did well. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really, really glad that Ponzi's getting bazillions of dollars for, um, mm -hmm. and that they can, I mean, everybody who came up here was taking a terrible chances. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, they were putting everything on the line for this thing. And um, people like us don't start wineries anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we bought out on, on um, Ribbon Ridge, it was $3,000 an acre. I don't know what that land is worth now. Scads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially with mature vineyards on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But wh where can you... I don't... Th yeah. That's how it's changed. Mm -hmm. It's just... It's just overwhelming. You, you mentioned when, uh, new, new, new mother, congratulations on that. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, tell me about <clears throat> watching her grow into, into the winemaking world. Oh, she's such a great person. There's just nobody like her. Um, well, she kind of, <laughs> the first Christmas card she was in, we were up there holding her on that bare land and Ian was standing in front and she was there in her little bonnet and, uh, you know, she couldn't get away from it. And then when we, when Harry started doing commercial wine, the kids would get, be down in the basement. They'd get paid for putting the labels on. And, um, and then <clears throat> later on, I know, well, she went, she went to back east to a, Ivy League school and got a degree in chemistry. Mm -hmm. So she was following in her dad's footsteps, kind of, sort of. But she wasn't sure. Okay. And then she worked um, right out of school. She went up to Syracuse and got a job in a lab, a pharmaceutical lab. And then she came here, um, back here after two years. She couldn't stand being in those winters. <laughs> and um, she came back here and did research at OHSU and we were out having dinner one night and she said I said how long are you going to do this and she said I don't know and I said what do you think about getting into the wine industry and she said oh I don't know and I said yeah you get to drink good wine you get to eat good food you get to travel to places you get to go do harvest in New Zealand and, well she hadn't done that yet but um she did, she'd worked out, worked harvest a couple times mm -hmm, out mm -hmm. at Shehalem and um, said so you get to go all these interesting places because people in the wine industry travel mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Harry was traveling a lot then and she said yeah and I said it's kind of a l nice lifestyle and she said yeah and then a year later she enrolled at UC Davis and then she did, she worked harvests in California and she worked two harvests in New Zealand and um, she wanted to she wanted to get her master's degree she probably could have been a really good winemaker without it but she didn't want to have to argue with her dad about certain things and <clears throat> and she knew that she needed some clout you know mm -hmm. And um, it worked really well. I mean, I th they've worked together for years, and it seems like an amazing partnership. They have great respect for each other. She's a crack winemaker. She does, um, she does, she, 
you know, Ian and I were more kind of off in the clouds, and Harry and Wynne are really grounded and focused, and um, she does everything she's supposed to do mm -hmm. to produce good wine, mm -hmm. and she knows how to do it. Plus, she's got a great palate, mm -hmm. and um, great, great knowledge. I just have a lot of admiration for her, and I'm glad she picked that path because it, it seems she seems well suited to it, and she seems to get a lot of joy in it. She has a lot of close. She's really close with a lot of people out in the in the business. I mean, this women's group, they're doing amazing things. Um, these women winemakers that they get together and have their little tastings and socials and um, I'm, they're all going to be glad to be able to get back to that. Mm -hmm. It's been such a hard time mm -hmm. lately, but um, yeah, she's doing amazing things and she's got a lot of good people to do it with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm so, so proud of her. You mentioned the pandemic and, and, the, and its effect. Tell me about, from your perspective, obviously you're not not in the wine industry, but from, from how it has affected you and, and your work life? Well, it's been very difficult um, because, well, for the first three or four months, we were all scared to do anything. I mean, literally. And I have some people, close friends out here. One thing we, we never quit doing, we had to move and we would get out every day rain or shine with our little masks on and do our walks so I kept doing that I got back into cooking because uh, I had more time it's been hard and then my best one of my best friends got pancreatic cancer mm. and died mm. a couple months ago so we had to you know give her wide berth during chemo we couldn't even go I mean if we went to her house, we were all sitting out on the deck, and she'd be sitting inside. She had no immunity, mm -hmm. and and that was a horrible thing to have happen. Mm -hmm. And then there was this, this, um, you know, I think it was such a blessing to have a grandkid arrive in the middle of it all. And on Harry's birthday, he is all puffed up like a toad about that. He is so pleased, and um, he's, it's just this wonderful, mellow kid, and Wynn's already decided he's going to be in the wine industry, <laughs> the third generation, third generation. and uh, <laughs> I think they're all committed to that, poor thing, but um, no, it's been, it's just been a lot of ups and downs, and the thing, the worst thing for me is it's been difficult for me to write, and I've had all this time, but I've had other things that were more important, and they've been getting my attention. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so I mean, it's 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 been a change of life for everyone, and um, you know, just I um, I stuck about the only people. Well, really, the only people I'd see regularly were Wynn and Rob, and then Wynn and Rob and Julian. But um, yeah, that was kind of kind of it. We we had some dinners, masked gatherings in Harry's and Dee Dee's garage, 
uh, you know, for major events, but it was, it's been pretty solitary, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, we're n not of an age where we can go chasing around and think, oh, well, if I get it, I'll survive, because mm -hmm. the odds are against it, even if you're healthy. I mean, you watch TV just like everyone else, and um, yeah, we couldn't take chances, and I think I'll still even, I think what I do now is I'm going to probably still wear masks when I go to the grocery store, even if I don't have to. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no flu season this year. Who wants to get that? Mm -hmm. And um, I think the masks are a godsend because that's what's, uh, I think more than anything else, that's what's kept people from getting sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a big believer. And I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get anyone else sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's but the uh, the world has changed mm -hmm. for me at least. You talked about your your future writing plans. What else do you have? In, what else are you looking forward to in the future? Looking forward to getting back to it and looking forward to, to tackling and. Well, I hope my, I hope I find. I mean, I'm not going to forget how to write, but I hope I find the juice to write a couple more novels, because I've just been struggling with, with getting going on, really getting into it. You mm -hmm. know, I, I haven't. I've written, like I said, but I haven't really gotten into either of the two of the ones I've started. And Ian was an amazing poet, and um, I'm going to put together. Um, going editing his poetry and getting a book out mm -hmm. by Christmas at the latest, mm -hmm. so yeah. Yeah, he was, um, he wrote amazing poetry and even, I mean, he died when he was 19 and I, I can't even imagine where he might have gone with that. Mm -hmm. He would have been maybe an, another Amanda Gorman. I mean, you know, he just came to him. Mm -hmm. It's. Um, yeah, when you get that voice, it's not something that happens to too many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, what prompted you, what prompted you to do that now with his poetry? Oh, I keep, you know, I was so long. I didn't want to even think about it. It just, I just guess, it took a long time to be ready to, to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's still difficult, but I did get them all out. On his birthday last June, and read through the whole thing and think, oh my God, look at this, you know? It stands up, it stands up to the test of time. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to, you know, it's something I would, we could, Harry and I will collaborate on. Um, he's got, He's digitalized all the old photos. Mm -hmm. I think we could put out an amazing book, and there are family members who would appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, what's question for you? Maybe a little philosophical for you here at the end. Okay. Uh, tell me about, in your from your perspective, what is the role wine plays in a society? Well, I think it's a great civilizing influence. It's hard to sit down and have a couple glasses of wine with someone and bear enmity. I mean, it, it does happen, but it softens edges. It's art and science. 
And I think it's a, an important part of culture. I think in conjunction with food, you know, it's just sitting and sitting down and sharing. It's one of the most civilized things we can do, really. Um, and people who, uh, one thing we always did in our family was sit down and have dinner together every night, no matter what. And um, it was it was always a remark. No matter where we'd been in the day, or or who was mad at whoever else, or whatever else was going on, we did that. And um, I think in in our in our um, our first world cultures are getting. Um, I talk, you know. I mean, so-and-so eats dinner, and then so-and-so comes home and eats dinner, and then somebody else comes through and eats dinner. No, you got to do this, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And what, wine is, a, is an integral part of that. And, and just, um, I especially, I mean, I knew that just from when how I was raised and how we as a family functioned that um, it had it was where everybody we got to all hear we got to hear the stories and it's the story stupid <laughs> and um, it's it's tribal in the best sense of the word um, and more people should do it dang it <laughs> you know don't just pretend like dinner isn't important. You got to sit down with whoever you're with, have dinner. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to beat the drum on that till I'm dead. Oh, I think I think I've passed that on. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I have. And um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just really one of the most important things we can do. And wine is an important part of that. And it has been for thousands of years. I mean, it's not somebody's new idea. It's, it's, it's past the test of time. It, people aren't going to quit doing it, but I hope. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really magical. All the questions that I have for you today, Judy, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today? Good we grief. Covered? We covered just about everything, don't you think? We, we've was, been busy. That was, that was the goal. So excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality, for your sharing and candor. I am glad that this happened. It's been a lot of fun for me. Good. Excellent. I'm so glad. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank I'm you. let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber.
Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.